Upper Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit UpperFrisco.com. Guys, it's just wonderful to come together and remember together how good God is and celebrate all he's done, what he's doing, and what he's going to do. Um, I loved worshiping with you guys. I could just feel hearts being recalibrated, awakened to the reality of his presence, awakened to the reality of what I started to feel at the end there was our great worth to him. And we we were singing about how costly the cross is, how in like just audacious, mind-boggling, recalibrating, all of reality huge the cross was. But when you go to like the motive, it was really, really simple. He could see you. He was looking at you. You were the joy set before him. Like it, that, that joy spurned him on, motivated him. It was the joy set before him that cost him to carry the shame pressed down on him. And I just wanted, if you hear nothing else today, I want you to know how loved you are by God. He just loves the stuffing out of you. He would love you endlessly if you never changed. Like he loved you and found you and searched you out like we were singing today when we were a long way off. He is the savior of Luke 15. He is the father running off the porch. He is the shepherd searching for the one. He is the, the woman who lights a lamp and looks for her one lost coin. And, and it says, until she finds it, until he finds that lost lamb. That's how much you're worth to him. So I loved singing to the Lord today and just being reminded all over again of his goodness. Um, you know, I, I have been um, obsessed with Jesus since I was a kid. But if you're anything like me, you grew up in, uh, in certain like theological or church traditions that sometimes you had to like unpack later on. You had to go back and revisit and, say, and just question like, is that, is that really the most beautiful way to look at my God? And so, uh, you know how you, you like through your, your teens and, and maybe into your 20s, you learn all these things, you amass this knowledge about God, and then it almost seems like for two decades, you're unlearning everything <laughs> that you learn. Am I the only one in here? You, know, you guys know what I'm talking about. It's, and it's, it is the most amazing feeling to have the Holy Spirit tear down a less than beautiful view of God and replace it with his true image. There's nothing more exhilarating than the tearing down and immediately building up of the most beautiful man. You get to see him more rightly. You get to understand how loved you are. And you realize, like, he's kinder than I thought. He's better than my best thought about him on my best mood day. And he, he's better than we taught. Like we're, we're trying, you know, repentance is when you realize that you had a thought about God that isn't as good as reality. And you get to lay that down, laugh at it, and realize how much better he actually is than what you thought of him yesterday or five minutes ago. You know that God does sit on high and laugh at the plans of the enemy. We, we can actually laugh like, ho, 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 he, 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 I can't believe I believed that about you. Like, and he, he loves the process of us discovering him. 
And so I wanna submit to you today that Jesus is better than we thought. And if you're anything like me, um, maybe 10, 15, 20 years ago, or maybe last year, has anyone ever believed something about God that today you think is hogwash? Yes, yes. And we're so grateful for the, the process and the path and the, the unlearning and the learning. But what I wanna ask you today in a, in a place of humility, theological humility, is it possible that in this moment we believe subpar things about God and 10, 20 years we'll laugh at the things that we believe today? It's a little bit harder to like realize that because we're in this moment. We, all, we only realize what we realize. We only know what we know, but I guarantee that we are going to be discovering for the rest of our lives that he's better than we thought. About 20 years ago, I heard Bill Johnson say that Jesus is perfect theology. And uh, that was one of the starting points of me uh, uh, discovering a more beautiful God. I'm so grateful that he said that. It's the simplest phrase. It offended me and excited me all at the same time. I was like, it can't be that simple. But what it also did is it gave me permission to rethink God by looking at the sun. Jesus is the exact representation of God, right? And so if we are to study his life, his nature, his way, his words, the way he would interact with people, then we are actually discovering what the Father is exactly like, aren't we? And so I, I endeavored the process of trying to read scripture through the, the revealed life of Jesus, the revealed love of Christ. I, and I tried to look at life through the lens of Jesus. And you might be wondering, like, what does that even mean? Well, imagine, like, we have a couple counselors in here, like licensed counselors, but imagine that you're a counselor and you have a magical pair of glasses. And when you put these glasses on, the adult client that you are looking at and talking to and counseling suddenly looks like a, you know, a seven-year-old child and you can see moments in their life when they were hurt, when they were neglected, when they were abandoned. And, and all of a sudden, things begin to make perfect sense and, and you, they no longer look like the hot mess that was sitting there. They, they look like a, a child that has wounds and you can see, you can see through these magical glasses the, the hard things that have happened to them and the hard things that happened to their parents and the things that were passed down through generations and suddenly you have unending compassion and you could go right at the root, the lies that they believe about themselves, the wounds that cause them this mental illness and, and it's gotta be the most exhilarating thing to be able to look into a situation, see past the symptoms, find the root of the disease, call it out and free someone, right? Or imagine you're a doctor and you have a similar kind of glasses, you put them on and instead of just seeing the symptoms, you can see right into a person's body, right to the core, right to the root of the sickness and you know how to treat it. How exhilarating would that be to have those kind, kinds of glasses on? Now, imagine you're a, a theologian 
Everybody in here is one, whether you know it or not. You have all have thoughts of God. We're all theologians learning things about God our whole lives. So imagine, you know, you're, you're a believer, a disciple, a theologian, and, and you put on this pair of glasses, and when you open the Bible, you're able to read every scripture as if Jesus himself was narrating it in the context and content. You can see the smile on his face when he said things. How amazing would it be to be able to go to scripture and see exactly what Jesus was meaning to say with all of these verses? You could feel the very loving intentions of the Father in every story. All of your pain would evaporate. Any, any place where you mistrusted God, it would just dissipate because you could see his, his perfect heart, his, his perfect motives. Even a history would begin to make sense. Even difficult passages that you read in the Bible where you're like, that kind of paints God in an unsavory light. Well, those passages would come into perfect light. Immense healing would wash over your heart and it would reinvigorate you to the core. That's what it would be like to read scripture through the lens of Jesus's life, death, resurrection, and ascension, to read scripture through the very love of Christ. And I believe that this is exactly what happened to the two who were walking on the road to Emmaus. You guys know the story. It's in Luke 24. I'll give you, I'll give you the gist. This is, Jesus has resurrected. He talked to the women at the tomb, but he hasn't gone and hung out with all of the other disciples yet. But he knows that there are two of his best friends, two of his disciples are walking away from Jerusalem on a road to Emmaus, and he just does this translation, transportation thing and just pops down next to him. But he's able to disguise himself somehow so they don't physically recognize him and they just begin talking, right? Are you guys familiar with the story? And, and the disciples, uh, the, they're talking to who they think is a stranger and they're telling him all about the things that have transpired in the last few days about how Jesus was crucified. We thought he was the savior. Some women, you know, from our friends said that he rose from the dead. It's very mysterious. And then it says that from the beginning, it says it like this in verse 32, beginning with Moses, and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. They got to hear the greatest message ever preached. They got to hear Jesus preaching Jesus. They got to hear Jesus have Jesus show them all throughout scripture the places where he was hidden. You know that he's hidden in all of scripture, right? Which is why all the disciples were really confused at the whole like dying on a cross and all the things Jesus would say, I'm gonna be betrayed. They're like, what are you talking about? No, you're gonna lead us in conquest against Rome. You're the Messiah. You're gonna bring the freedom of our nation. They thought it was a physical conquest and Jesus the whole time came to defeat an enemy way greater than Rome because his struggle was never against flesh and blood. He came to free us from all spiritual oppression, but they didn't understand that there was gonna be a suffering, dying Messiah who had raised from the dead. 
It makes perfect sense to us now because we have 2,000 years of hindsight and we can go back through all of scripture and we can see all the prophecies, but it's a, it's a puzzle. It's like a mosaic all throughout scripture. And they didn't catch it. That's why it's called the mystery of Christ. And this was actually God's plan. He had to keep it secret. He had to keep it a mystery. Do you know why? In 1 Corinthians 2.8, it says, if the rulers of this age knew what they were doing, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory. God kept his plan secret. He kept it scattered throughout all of scripture, scattered throughout all of history so that he would bait Satan into sending love into the grave. See, Jesus' humanity was the bait on the hook that caused death to swallow divinity. Death could only swallow divinity, but it couldn't digest it, could it? And Jesus swindles the great swindler. So the disciples got these Jesus lens glasses and it was so incredible that they said what? What did they say? Were not our hearts burning within us as he opened the scriptures to us on the road? So they actually said he opened the scriptures to us, which means what? That before that they were closed. If they were close to those two disciples without the spirit of Christ revealing them, wouldn't scriptures be close to us without the spirit of Christ revealing them to us? I know that might be unsettling to learn that scriptures are confusing or closed or hard to interpret unless the spirit of Christ is opening to them, opening them to us. I heard a, a, a teacher say it like this one time, you can hear the spirit without the scripture, but you can't hear the scriptures without the spirit. Is everybody okay? <laughs> Y'all know that I love the Bible with all my heart. Everyone in here should know the Bible better than anyone else in history. Like this church, I want us to know scripture better than any generation that has ever come before us. But we need to be reading scripture through the lens of Jesus' love. Jesus puts it like this. In John 14, 26, I will send you the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth and remind you of everything I said to you. So scripture actually won't make sense. In fact, I'm gonna take it a step further because Paul does. This is in the Bible. It will actually bring death if we read scripture without our Jesus glasses on. Paul said the letter kills, but the spirit brings life. I'm gonna keep on going, because I can tell that you guys love this. Uh, Hebrews chapter one, this is how the author of Hebrews puts it. He just drops a bomb on how we used to relate to God, on how we used to understand God right from the get-go. This is chapter one, verse one, it kicks off like this. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers in many ways, at various times, by the prophets. But, everybody say, but. but. When? In these days. In these last days, he has spoken to us, or some translations say he's speaking to us by his son. The 
then the book begins to lead us to understand why and how Jesus is greater than the angels, greater than Moses. Jesus brings a greater covenant. But I want you to understand something. This is probably the most inflammatory thing that uh, an ancient Jew could stumble on. This one scripture. Because all their life they've endeavored to please God through keeping the law. It would be a huge like deconstruction to tell them, you can't go to God like that anymore. You can't even understand him through Moses, the law or Torah. You actually have to go through Jesus now. In fact, scripture says that when Moses is read, a veil falls over our eyes. Only in Christ is it removed. This is a huge shift for humanity. And many today still haven't made this shift, but God, through the book of Hebrews, he is admonishing us to leave the old ways for the new and living. Hebrews, I want you to hear this. This book is not promoting that we add Jesus to Moses, but that we replace Moses with Jesus. This book is not admonishing us to add the new covenant to the old, but it's replacing the old covenant with the new. Is everybody with me? So why? Well, verse two begins to tell us the reason why we should embrace this massive shift to Jesus and depart from following anyone who came before him. Really, it's no big deal, guys. It's just that Jesus is the heir of all things and made the universe. (laughs) Oh yeah, and he's also the very radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. And don't forget this one, this is huge. He is sustaining all things by his powerful word. Who is this guy? I'm telling you guys that while Jesus was spinning on this earth, all of the cosmos was spinning in him. Colossians 1, 15 through 20 puts it like this. I'm gonna paraphrase, just like Vince did an awesome job paraphrasing. This is the JIV, Jeremy International Version. This is Hebrews 1, 15 through 20. He is the image of the invisible God. By him, all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He has supremacy. For God was pleased to have all the fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Brethren, when Thomas, when doubting little Thomas reached his hand into the side of Jesus, he reached into the container of the cosmos. He was brushing against the furnace engine of the universe. If these scriptural claims are true, then I'm, I'm betting my entire life that they are, then it's time for us to start viewing all of scripture and all of life through the person of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The very air that we are breathing in this moment, take a breath, that is Christological air. The higher we lift Jesus over everything, the more sense we will make of everything, or at least we will enjoy the mystery a whole lot more, won't we? (laughs) Jesus' closest friend, John, he had a lot of radical, life-changing things to say 
along these lines. He, he kicks off his gospel by saying that before all things, Jesus, the word of God, aka the logos or the logic or the mind of God, Jesus, the very mind of God, Jesus was not just with God. That word with God is the word pros or pros, P-R-O-S. It means like turned face to face. So before all time, the father and son were face to face enjoying self-giving love. Then mystically, Jesus takes on flesh, lived among us. John saw his glory and they described it like this. We saw his glory, the glory of the one and only son full of grace and truth. And then he quickly gets to his next point in the book of John. He juxtaposes, where Mo, he juxtaposes Moses and Jesus. And he says, Moses gave us the law, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And then John drops this really insane verse. This should have us like scratching our heads and wondering what John meant with this verse. This is John 1.18. No one has ever seen God. But the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. That's an inflammatory verse. That verse might get John kicked out of a lot of churches because what he's saying is, I mean, John is no slouch when it comes to scripture. He knows how Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. What do you mean no one has seen God, John? What about Abraham walking around having a discussion with God? How about Moses, Ezekiel, Isaiah, several other Hebrew heroes that had these encounters with God. So what's the deal, John? Like, how can you say that no one has seen God? Here's what I think. And I say it's what I think because I'm not certain, but this is what I think John is saying in this moment. Compared to the revealing of the Father that we've seen in the incarnation of the Son, no one has ever seen what God is really like. In other words, every encounter with God that people may have had was just a veiled, blurry glimpse, and there is no comparison between what every Old Testament dude experienced and seeing Jesus in the flesh. People, when they met Jesus, we can rightly say, we thought God was like that, <laughs> but he's actually like this right here we actually see him. One time Philip asked Jesus, he adjured Jesus and said, show us the father. And Jesus is like, Philip, haven't I been with you long enough? If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Which means that when Jesus did things that were out of the box. When he healed on the Sabbath, which he did at least seven times, the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They questioned him and began to persecute him. And he answered, I, I only do what I see my dad doing. Woo, that made him really mad. Who is this guy that is calling Yahweh Abba? No one has ever called God dad. How dare he? 
And when Jesus worked miracles on the Sabbath, that's what he saw dad doing. When he told the cripple to break the Sabbath by carrying his mat, that's what he saw the father doing. When he ate the heads of grain on the Sabbath, he saw the father scooping up big old handfuls of grain and eating them on the Sabbath too. When he didn't ceremonially wash his hands before supper, that's exactly what the father did. When he kneeled down to write in the dust and pardon the woman caught in adultery, that's what dad did. When Jesus carried his cross and laid down on it, it's because that's where he saw the father laying. Jesus said, I look like dad. I say what dad says. I do what dad does. And getting to know me is getting to know the father. See, the, the issues that the religious leaders had with Jesus back then is the same issues that many people have today. He doesn't look or sound like we thought God was supposed to look or sound like. He doesn't act like what we thought. He doesn't behave like the God that we imagined or heard about, the God that we've been sacrificing to. And to that, I say amen and hallelujah. Thank God he is nothing like that. Jesus didn't abide by their cultural and religious rules. He didn't manifest a punishing justice. He didn't hang out with the religious elite or the self-important people of power. He associated with the messy and the broken, the impoverished, the ones that needed a healer. He forgave sins without sacrifice, without retribution, without restitution, even without what seemed to be signs of penitence. Jesus looked nothing like what they imagined Yahweh would look like. And so hear this. Since Jesus didn't look like what they knew God was supposed to look like, they treated him the way they thought their God would want Jesus treated. In the name of God, they killed God. Jesus was killed by know-it-alls. They were certain of so many things that just were not so. See, they knew the book of God better than anyone, but somehow missed the God of the book. And as your pastor, this is one of the most important things I want our community to get. It's a place where we're just theologically humble, teachable, our hearts and hands are open to the Lord to show us that he might be better than we thought. Because I'm afraid that Jesus could rightly say to many Christians today what he said to the Pharisees, you diligently search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which speak of me, and yet you refuse to come to me, that you would have life. There are three Greek words that we translate into the word, word, in the Bible, the English word for word. Um, sometimes graphe gets translated as the word, word, and graphe is the scriptures, it's the written. And rhema, rhema is the Greek word for the utterance of the spirit. It's like a proceeding, timely, in the moment word. Who needs a rhema word from God? 
And then lagas, lagas was, is a Greek word that's translated into a word that is only reserved for Jesus. Lagos is the logic or mind of God. It's, it's in reference to the Savior, the incarnation. Open up to Hebrews 4.12. Is everybody okay? Yeah. Is this fun? Yes. Good. Does it feel like we're like getting a chiropractic adjustment? Like I just, <laughs> I feel like I came loaded for bear. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> Everyone in here is probably somewhat familiar with this verse. Uh, we probably, when we were in Sunday school, made cardboard swords because of this verse. This is uh, Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So we know, like, that's a, that's a famous verse about the, the word of God being the sword of the Lord. And I have a question for you guys. Out of the three words for the, like, out of the three Greek words for the word word, where it says the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, which one do you think is used in this moment? Graphe, rhema, or lagas? Bingo. Lagas. Thank you, Casey. Check out verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. It just personified the word of God, named the word of God the Lagas, which is Christ, and then personified and said, no creature is hidden from his sight. So what is sharper than any two-edged sword? the incarnation of Christ, the living word. (laughs) But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him to whom we must answer. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest, see, still talking about Jesus, the sword of the Lord, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let's hold firmly to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things, and just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let's approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help at the time of our need. Okay, hang with me, because I want you to hear this really clearly. The Bible can be used as a sword, but any spirit can wield it. The Bible has been used in the hands of the spirit of greed, the spirit of racism, spirit of sexism, spirit of murder and manipulation, and Satan can quote it. But you know what can't be manipulated 
or made to say anything that he doesn't want to say. There is actually no stronger witchcraft than using God's word without God's heart. The damage we've done weaponizing scripture to justify a struggle against flesh and blood is inestimable. We try killing people because we have a verse saying that God is on our side. Just like some of his favorite disciples. You guys remember the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Peter, James, and John go up the mountain with Jesus. Jesus is transfigured, glorious splendor. A cloud envelops them. Moses and Elijah appear on the mountain in glorious splendor, talking with them. And Peter just starts talking. He's so excited, he just starts jabbering. And he's like, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let me set up three tabernacles. Three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And God, the Father, interrupts him, thundering from the cloud which they are enveloped in. This is a grade A spiritual encounter, right? And so God interrupts Peter and says, this is my son. Listen to him. The encounter's over. The cloud's gone. Moses and Elijah have disappeared. Jesus is left standing on the mountain in the appearance that he had when they walked up. And it is as if God was saying, no, no, Peter, we're not making an equal place for Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. Jesus has come to carry what they could never finish. The last testament of the law and the prophets was endorsing the Savior. Peter made the mistake that we have all made. He wanted to keep around Moses and Elijah. Maybe he was thinking we could use these two uh, and to, to complete our, our world domination conquest. The father clearly opposed that idea. This is an exclamation point from the father himself on the supremacy of Christ and the deficiency of all who came before him. This is similar to how John the Baptist who Jesus said represents Elijah, John the Baptist said, I must decrease and he must increase. We know that this is a tricky situation coming under the the power of the, the law, coming under the understanding of the old covenant and trying to transition into the new covenant and letting go of all of the old things because the very next day we find the disciple of love, John the Baptist, wanting to call down fire and kill people. He was racially charged to murder a city and he wanted to call down fire just like Elijah, who he saw on the mountain the day before, right? And what does Jesus say? You don't know what spirit you're of. For the son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives like Elijah did by calling fire down from heaven. The son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And when Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of, it's the same thing as him on the cross saying, they don't know what they're doing. Jesus was dealing with the deception 
Like Ryan talked about last week, Ryan did such a good job talking about the deception of sin actually lies in our identity because we know that sin isn't a behavior problem, right? Behavior flows from identity. So sin isn't a behavior problem, sin is an identity problem. We are going to manifest the people that we believe we are. And so if we are wretched, wicked sinners, well, that's what we're going to eventually act like, right? But Jesus gets to the heart of that deception and says, from the garden they've been deceived. See, Jesus, in that moment, he is looking down at the cross, from the cross, saying, Father, forgive them. And I believe that in that moment, he's gazing into the great cloud of witnesses and he's probably locked eyes with Eve. He's probably locked eyes with Adam and said, you didn't know what you were doing, boy. You didn't know what you were doing, sweetheart. See, Adam fell in paradise, but the last Adam would stand in hell. And Jesus would allow us to pour out all of our rage, all of our accusation, all of our wrath on him, showing us that he would rather die for us to win our hearts back than retaliate on his deceived children. A famous philosopher once said that you can measure the power of a being by how much violence it can absorb before it retaliates. See, up until that moment, the death and resurrection and ascension and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when things began to make sense and the Lord was dwelling with us, we could only see the Father through the distorted lens of the enemy, through the lens of our own fears and our anxieties. I believe that we have uh, spent a lot of our lives just tarnishing the face of the Father through our own deceptions. But now we get to see him through the Son. And I want you guys to know with all confidence that the Father will never do anything that is unchristlike. And I actually want us in one way to be like the Pharisees, but I want us to diligently search the graphe, search through the scriptures, viewing them through the lens of Jesus's love. Can we stand up together and pray? This is something that only the Holy Spirit can do. Father, right now we thank you for your smile over us. We thank you for your arms of affection wrapping our hearts. We thank you, God, that you are revealing to us the beautiful heart of Jesus. We're getting to see you in a new light. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would open our eyes, you give us that wisdom and revelation, that you would empower us in our inner man to just begin to grasp how vast your love is, Jesus the power that is at work within us. We pray, God, that you would draw out every bit of sin's deception from us so we could see ourselves rightly and see you rightly. Pray, God, like we were singing today, that we would be running with confidence to your throne. God, I pray that you would heal all the places where religion has stolen our joy. Father, all the places where we did something in the name of God that really just injured us. 
pray that you would pull out every single lie of the enemy and you would show us again Jesus and him crucified. Just like Paul, we resolve to know nothing but you, Jesus, and the love you manifested on the cross. In your name we pray, amen.